But this morning we have before us the first 12 verses of chapter 9. It is a story of Jesus healing a man blind from birth. But it is much more than simply an instance of healing and compassion. If you would please give attention to the reading of God's holy word. For the word of the Lord is completely inerrant. The word of the Lord is completely authoritative. And the word of the Lord is completely sufficient. John chapter 9, beginning at verse 1. As he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, It was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Having said these things, he spit on the ground and made mud with the saliva. Then he anointed the man's eyes with the mud and said to him, Go, wash in the pool of Siloam, which means scent. So he went and washed and came back, seeing. The neighbors and those who had seen him before as a beggar were saying, Is this not the man who used to sit and beg? Some said, It is he. Others said, No, but he is like him. He kept saying, I am the man. So they said to him, Then how were your eyes opened? He answered, The man called Jesus made mud and anointed my eyes and said to me, Go to Siloam and wash. So I went and washed and received my sight. They said to him, Where is he? He said, I do not know. Thus far the reading of God's holy word. Let's pray for his blessing upon it. Let's pray together. O Lord, our God, we ask this morning that you would open up your word to us. For apart from the power of your Holy Spirit, we are unable to understand your word. But in your word, we find the great truth of who our Savior is, the Lord Jesus Christ. We find the great truth of what He has done for us. And so we ask, Heavenly Father, that You would let us glimpse Your plan of redemption through the work of our Savior. This we ask in Christ's precious name. Amen. Jesus was a master communicator. He not only brought truth to others, but he did it in a way that we can understand. This is a story about a man who was suffering and how Jesus healed him. In that way, this is like many other stories in John's gospel and in the other gospels. But it is also a visible representation of the truth that Jesus is the light of the world. Come to bring his people out 
of darkness. So this story helps you in two ways. It gives you truth about suffering, and it also shows you that Jesus is the answer to your greatest problem. So this morning I'd like us to see three things from our text, each of them related in some sense to suffering. The very first thing we will see is the problem of suffering. That suffering is a problem, a conundrum, sometimes a mystery to us. Secondly, I'd like us to see God's providence in suffering. That God is aware of our suffering. That He has a plan for our suffering. And that He is at work in the midst of our suffering. And then finally, I would like us to see God's purpose in this suffering, in this particular man who was born blind, God has a purpose for you and for me, that we might know more who he is and what he has done through this incident before us. The problem of suffering, God's providence in suffering, and the purpose in this suffering. Well, let's begin then by looking at chapter 9. This is a new section of John's Gospel. Chapter 9 begins the last segment of the first half of this book. This Gospel began with Jesus gathering up His disciples in the first few chapters, and then it moved in chapter 5 to a period of conflict with the Jewish leaders. We've been seeing that over and over again as Jesus does healings as he proclaims who he is. The Pharisees and the Jewish leaders attack him, try to undercut him, and really want to kill him. Now here in chapter 9, there are a few chapters in which Jesus will be ministering to believers as he heads toward the cross. In chapter 13, the cross will be front and center. But now Jesus is on his way, but as he goes... He is continuing to serve and minister to others. We've spoken about this first half of John's Gospel as being called the Book of Signs. You may remember John's thesis for this entire Gospel that he has given to us signs that Jesus has done, not all of them, but these specific ones, so that we might know that Jesus is the Christ. And by knowing, we might believe in his name and may have eternal life. And so this is the sixth such sign. You remember that Jesus turned water into wine. And then he healed the royal official's son. And then he healed a lame man who had laid lame by the pool for decades. Then he fed the 5,000, and after that he walked on water. Those are the first five. And then after this healing, there's still one more sign to come as Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead. Now, at the beginning of chapter 9, John does what he has done for us before. That is, it's a new scene, but we don't know how much time has passed between the end of chapter 8 and the beginning of chapter 9. John intentionally doesn't tell us what has gone on. And I think John does that because he wants us, as we come here to chapter 9, to still have in the front of our minds the great feast and that festival of lights. He wants Jesus' statement in chapter 8, verse 12, 
I am the light of the world to be ringing in our ears. He wants us to have that in our minds as we see this incident. And even more than that, I think John wants us to remember the way this gospel began. You remember that John said in chapter 1, The light shines in darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. The true light which gives light to everyone was coming into the world. So this is the context for Jesus now coming, passing by a man blind from birth. John tells us this man was blind from birth. Now, we're not told whether Jesus passed by this man by design. If Jesus had said to his disciples earlier in the day, we're going to go down this path. We do know, however, that this man was well known as a blind beggar. When the disciples go by, they know this man was, blind, was born blind. All of his neighbors and friends know him as the blind man, so much so that they don't even recognize him when he can see later. And so John is setting something up for us here to see. Notice the contrast with verse 59 of the previous chapter. In the end of chapter 8, the leaders, the Pharisees, reject Jesus. And what is his response? He goes away from them. And now here in the beginning of this chapter, Jesus has a man that he is going to reach out to. Now this man is born blind, so it should be no surprise to us that it is Jesus who initiates the contact. He doesn't know who Jesus is. He doesn't know what Jesus looks like. He doesn't even know where Jesus is because he can't see. Now, you need to know about all of John's gospel, but particularly this passage before us, that this is not just a story. John is intentional in what he includes and tells us. He wants you to see who Jesus is. He wants you to know that Jesus is the one who reaches out with compassion to those who are suffering. Don't forget that. John is putting this front and center before us so we understand better who Jesus is. Well, as Jesus and his disciples go by this blind man, his disciples ask him a question. It's a question that is a common question, and it's an understandable question. They say to him, Rabbi, teacher, who sinned, this man or his parents? We know he's born blind, so one of them had to have been the cause of this. Which one of them sinned? Now, this is not just a question that comes up in Jesus' day. It's a question that we have in our day, isn't it? That is, why is there suffering? Why do bad things happen? People ask this all the time. They are, they are struck by things that happen that are not good, and they wonder why they have to be. Perhaps even this week, you will have a conversation with someone that will say, why was there a tornado that ripped through Mississippi and Alabama and killed 23 people? Or they'll say, why was there a pandemic? Or why is there war? Or why is there suffering? Explain that. Now, we have to see that there are certain assumptions behind the disciples' question. The very first assumption is 
that the world has order and has meaning. All of life is not random chaos. The question here is asking what the reason is. And the irony here is, is that when we meet people who seek to put God on trial, who seek to say, why are there tornadoes? Why are there hurricanes? Why are there wars? And their worldview is such that the world came from random chance of nothing. Yet they want order and reason in our world. It makes absolutely no sense at all. They are borrowing from God. They have a presupposition that the world is an orderly place, that things have meaning. You know, if someone ever comes up to you and says, why do bad things like disasters happen? They would not be satisfied with a response saying, well, I don't know, everything's just random and happens at chance anyway, so who really cares? Right? They want order. They want meaning. There's another assumption behind this question. It's that God is responsible for outcomes. God is the one who brings these things about. But the interesting thing is, so often we see God's responsibility as being a result of people's actions. That is, people see life as a series of rewards and punishments. That good people have good things happen to them. And, and bad people have bad things happen to them. And this is the way they, they look at the world. They look out at the world and they see bad things happening and they wonder to themselves, well, what did you do to deserve that? Now, before you get too quickly critical there, think about the way that you observe children in public. When you see children in public who are not behaving, who are doing something wrong, what is your first assumption? Those are bad parents. They brought this on themselves. They did something in the way they're raising their children that's causing this. You don't start with, I wonder if there's something wrong with the child. I wonder if the child is ill. I wonder if there's difficulty they're going. No, we immediately assume that if you want good children, you do good things. And God rewards you for that. And if you don't do good things, God gives you bad children. It's obedience in on Wednesday, as one commentator says, and blessing out on Thursday. That's what we want. So who's to blame here? The disciples are looking here, and obviously this is something very bad. The man is not only blind, he's never seen, he's been born blind. So we need to find out who's to blame. And again, this is the way that we think. We want to assign blame. Think about the most recent train derailment. We're not concerned with maybe that this was an accident or that something happened beyond our control. We want someone punished for this. Obviously, a bad thing like a train derailment doesn't happen unless someone is wrong and doing bad things. And we even wonder, well, maybe someone is trying to make that train derail so he could punish the people who live there who are bad. And we come up with all kinds of conspiracy theories to fit this rewards and punishment system. Think, the, think about the economy. Is the economy the result of billions of transactions? Or is it really just one or two people deciding where everything goes? Who's doing right and rewarding it? Who's doing bad and punishing it? 
Well, the disciples don't know, so they ask first, is it the man? Did he sin? Did he sin before he was born? And as odd as that sounds, there was a, a theory from religious leaders of the day that there were some children who could sin in the womb before they were born. Because if they were born blind, they would have to sin before birth. Now, I don't know what sinning in the womb looks like. I'm not a mother. Maybe it's extra kicking. Maybe it's super indigestion, uh, sleepless nights. I, I don't know. But there are some who thought that children could sin in the womb and that that would cause birth defects. Now, again, before you dismiss this as ridiculous, think about the many people here today, even some who profess Christ, who believe in karma. You know what karma is? Karma is the idea that we live not just once and die once, but many, many times. And if you live a life in which you do bad things, you are born again in a bad situation. That's karma. So if someone is born poor or disabled, they must have done bad things in a previous life. The problem with this is the Bible won't allow us to say that. The book of Hebrews says in chapter 9, verse 27, that we are appointed once to die and after that, the judgment. So how could this man have sinned before he was born? Well, what about his parents, you might ask? The disciples had that as an option. Did they do something wrong and now they're being punished? There is a sense in which we can twist the Bible to support this theory. If we go to the Ten Commandments in Exodus chapter 20, verse 5, we see that God says he will visit judgment upon the fourth and the fifth generation of those who commit iniquity and wickedness. Now, this does not refer to a child or a grandchild being punished for the sins of their ancestors. It's actually much more simple than that. It's the principle that if you have a home and your home is filled with lying all the time, what are your children going to grow up doing? They're going to be liars. If you steal things in front of your children all the time, what are your children going to do? They're going to steal. They're going to think that is the appropriate way to act and live. That's what the Ten Commandments are talking about. Because God says to Ezekiel in chapter 18, The soul who sins shall die. The son shall not suffer for the iniquity of the father, nor the father suffer for the iniquity of the son. So, God doesn't punish others for someone else's sin. But yet, suffering is still common in our world. It's common in a way that we don't have answers for. There are birth defects. There are disasters. There are things beyond our control that don't seem to be the result of specific actions. They just happen. So I think if we were there with Jesus then, we would ask the same question. Can Jesus help us here? Jesus answers this common question with a very uncommon answer. He doesn't choose either option. He goes beyond their thoughts. He says, it was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. Now, we've come to know Jesus, I think, quite well in the Gospel of John. Isn't this 
so like Jesus? We often want Him to validate our thoughts, our plans, our desires. But Jesus surprises us with His truth. He has an answer that we're not even thinking about, let alone expecting. He says, neither this man nor his parents sinned. Now, when Jesus says this, he is not saying that there is never suffering that is a result or a consequence of sin. We can just go through the Bible and see instances of this. For example, Moses' sister Miriam leads a rebellion against Moses. And she is struck with leprosy. Nadab and Abihu offer up worship in Leviticus, contrary to God's desire and command, and they are struck dead. Paul talks in 1 Corinthians 11 about those who eat and drink judgment to themselves because they come to the Lord's table with, with, without faith or wrongly. The Bible does say that you reap what you sow. You may even be familiar with that concept yourself. You may say, well, pastor, yes, I've had occasion where I've done things I shouldn't have done. I've sinned, and it brought about a real mess. I had to dig myself out of that. I had to pray to the Lord. I needed all kinds of help because I brought it on myself. That's real. But Jesus reminds us that the link between suffering and sin is not absolute. Life is not all about a reward principle. And we should be thankful for that. Because if all we got was reward for our deeds, we would get what we deserve. We would get hell. We would be rewarded for all of the sin that we commit. So we should thank the Lord that the world doesn't work in a vending machine way that we might imagine. And after all, our tendency is to apply this reward principle to others and to excuse ourselves. When we see others having difficulties or problems, they can't keep a job, or their house is falling apart, or they can't keep relationships, we look at them and we say, well, it's obviously a result of the way they live and their sin and their rebellion against God. But then when something bad happens to us, we say, well, you know, I'm a good person. This shouldn't be happening to me. I mean, okay, I'm not perfect, but, you know, I'm basically good most of the time. Why am I being rewarded for this? You see, we set up a double standard. But this question here is actually even more complex than that. Because Jesus could have answered the question, who sinned, by saying, Adam. You see, all suffering is a result of sin, of being in a fallen world. But all suffering is not a result of some particular sin. We need to remember that. Now that brings us to a second question, which the disciples could have asked. Why does God permit suffering? If suffering comes to us, and it's not always the result of a punishment for a specific sin, why does God permit it? You you can see how it's actually easier to think about suffering as a result of my sin. That's clean. It's easy. It's straightforward. It also makes it clearer for us to think we can avoid suffering. Just don't sin, and you won't suffer, right? How's that for pastoral wisdom for you? This week, don't sin, 
and your life will be better. Well, there's one major problem with that. It's a very low view of sin. The very fact that we think we can go a week, a day, an hour without sinning shows we don't understand the holiness of God and the depth of sin. We don't understand that sin is not just actions, but it is speech. It is our very thoughts. And so we have to come back to this question. The other thing that happens is too often in our world, people look for a natural, physical result. We don't look past the measurable or the visual. So many would say, well, there's no reason, it's all random chance, but we can see something physically. We know that someone has a birth defect because they have certain physical maladies. They're lacking certain chromosomes. They have a certain kind of bone density. We could do this analysis, and that's what we do. We talk about it just in terms of naturalism. There's no real reason for it. Now, that sounds good, but it's actually deadly because it leaves us with no hope. It leaves us with no purpose. We're cast adrift on an ocean of chaos and purposelessness. So that's not an answer for us as well. So what does the Bible tell us about God allowing suffering? I think the very first thing that we can think about is that God allows suffering for correction. The Lord knows there are times when we need to be corrected, when we need to be brought back on the right path, that we've gone off the path, And our attention needs to be gotten so that we can come back to the Lord. Just think about a family with small children. Have you ever had an instance where you saw a child dart away from parents toward a street? And I'm sure what you saw was the parents say, you know, that might not be the wisest decision. I'm sure you've given it some thought, but, well, I guess it'll all work out. We'll see what'll happen as you go toward the street, right? No. No, you see a parent put their big voice on. Get out of the street. Get here. And the parent will go up and hold the child and pull the child back. And then the parent will often discipline the child, ground the child, a smack on the bottom, do something to get their attention, to associate pain and negative effects with running toward the street. Why? Because that's a way to get killed. You don't run into the street. In the same way, God restrains our sin. He restrains our desire to destroy ourselves through our sinful desires with suffering and discipline. Just as parents discipline their children, God disciplines those whom he loves. We need to learn that sin is wrong and to obey God. Hebrews puts it this way. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. Now, has a truer statement ever been made? But later, discipline yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. You see, God has a purpose in suffering and discipline. Now, at other times, God uses trials to teach us about life and to bring us closer to Him. It's not correction, but it's rather construction. He builds us up through discipline. Suffering can compare us for greater challenges that are to come. We learn in our suffering. 
I don't think there's a better example in all of the scriptures than the life of Joseph. We have been on Sunday evenings reading through the book of Genesis, and recently we've been going through the life of Joseph. I would encourage you to join us on Sunday nights to be with us and hear about this. But think about the life of Joseph. He's sold into slavery and loses his family and is brought to a foreign land. And then he is betrayed by a wicked woman who gets her husband to put him in a prison pit. And then he helps a man to get out of the pit. And he says, please remember me. And the man immediately forgets. Why did God do that to Joseph? Well, we know the rest of the story, don't we? That God was bringing Joseph down so that he might lift him up to the highest of heights. That he would rule Egypt. That he would save Egypt. That he would save his family. That he would save the known world from famine. That was God's purpose. Sometimes God builds us up through suffering. He makes us who He wants us to be. Suffering molds us and shapes us. Paul puts it this way in Romans 5. We rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces Have you stopped to think about that for a moment, that suffering is the beginning of hope? That when we suffer, we seek the Lord, who is our hope? Now, I am not saying that you should look forward to suffering. Or that you should think suffering is the best thing that could happen to you. No. But you should look for God and His providence in suffering. You are not alone in a cruel and cold world. You are not without hope. The worst thing that you could imagine was for God to be uninvolved with your suffering. Well, there's also a third reason. And this reason is not primarily about us. Suffering comes to us to display God's glory. Jesus highlights this in his answer. And while the Bible gives us reasons for suffering that relate to us, suffering can also be primarily about God. You know, it doesn't always have to be all about me. Suffering could be about God. That's what Jesus says in his answer. There are important words in Jesus' answer here in verse 3. It was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. Now, often we can miss what the Bible wants us to see because we're rushing to find an answer that we already think we know. Have you done that? You're skipping through. There are two really important words here. The first one is but. The second one is that. Do you see how you could just read right past that quickly? But you see, but here is the strongest adversative that you can have in Greek. By adversative, I mean it sets one thing against the other. He says, not only is it not this, it's really that. Jesus wants your attention here. And this little word that means purpose. So that, in order that, we might say. You see, Jesus is telling us that this man was born blind for the purpose that the works of God might be displayed in him. 
That is the purpose. Sometimes our trials and sufferings are a means for God to display His glory. Now, God can display His glory by delivering us from suffering and answering our prayers. And that is wondrous. And we have seen that here in our congregation. We have prayed for those who have been diagnosed with cancer. We have prayed for those who have needed jobs. We have prayed for those who are going through difficulties. And we see God at work delivering them and our prayers are answered. And we give God all the glory. But God can also display His power through giving us the endurance to endure trials. That was Paul's testimony. He said, I was given a thorn in the flesh that I might not be proud. But my weakness was made strong in Christ. We also see this in the history of the church. I often think that if the American church formed a committee as to what church history should look like and how God should grow the church. It would look nothing like the last 2,000 years of church history. Christians would be in charge of every government. They would be the wealthiest. They would be the most important. They would be able to go on ahead. The church wouldn't be persecuted. It wouldn't be wiped out. People wouldn't be sold into slavery. People wouldn't be slaughtered. But God has shown His glory throughout the history of the church, even through trials and sufferings. Don't miss this. Sometimes there are physical explanations for suffering. Sometimes suffering is the fruit of our sin that we reap. Sometimes suffering is merely the result of living in a fallen world. But Jesus is telling us here that God has a plan in suffering. It's a part of God's sovereignty. Could you imagine being the man or his parents? Wondering what God was doing in this suffering? They could become bitter. They could become disillusioned. Because they couldn't see all things. Now, could you imagine being them after seeing how their suffering glorified God and showed the power of Jesus? You see, we can't be so quick to think that we know when we certainly don't. But there's one more thing I want us to see this morning. There's more than a general lesson here in our text about life. This story is the sixth sign of who Jesus is. John giving it to us to let us know that Jesus is the Christ and that our hope is found in Him. This is an important picture that goes beyond suffering in general. And Jesus highlights this in verse 5. He says, As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. So all that is happening here is intentional. The man was born blind. The man had no way to seek out Jesus. The man had no way of even knowing what he needed. He had no place to begin if you would have asked him, what can I do for you? He would not have known what to tell you. But Jesus comes intentionally to him. Jesus would have known about this man. The disciples obviously did. Jesus told us this encounter was designed to show the works of God. So what we have here is a picture of our condition. 
Because we are born blind, spiritually blind. We know no other condition. We know nothing else other than sin. This man was broken, not whole. And isn't that how the Bible describes us? That we are lost in sin. That we are spiritually blind. That we are unable to see. That we don't even know where the solution is to be found. Jesus told us that earlier in the gospel. In John 3. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Furthermore, this man's condition separated him from God. Because he was blind, because he had a malady, he could not enter the holy grounds of the temple. He could not go and be close to God at the temple. And that's also true of us in our initial estate. Sin separates us from God. We cannot approach God to receive his blessings. Think about Adam who was thrust out of the Garden of Eden because of his sin. God is too holy than to look upon sin. And this man's condition beyond that was without hope and help. No one could help this man. Not his parents. Not the authorities. Not the doctors. And as a result, do you see, he made no effort at all to find salvation. He was content for years simply to sit and beg. He didn't know what to even seek. Do you feel helpless? Does it seem like your situation is beyond help? Are you just struggling to get through? Do you think no one else can understand what you're going through? then you need to look at how Jesus came to the blind man. Because it's a picture, an image of each of us in need of a Savior. But the point of the story does not stop there. If it did, we might understand better our situation, but we would not have hope. It doesn't help us to just know we're lost in sin. It doesn't help us to just know we need a Savior. It doesn't just help us to know we can't help ourselves. Jesus does not come up to the man and tell him, you know, you should just make the best of it. Maybe your hearing is sharper. He doesn't say, don't worry. There's a purpose in your suffering and pain. That's not what Jesus does. No, Jesus comes to him with healing power. And he does this in a very odd way. Do you notice it in verse 6? He comes and he spits on the ground and he makes some mud and he puts mud on the man's eyes and tells him to go and wash. Now, why would Jesus do this? If you're wondering that, join the club. Because couldn't he just have spoken a word and healed the man? Of course he could have. Why is Jesus doing this? Well, I will spare you the many theories with no foundation in the text as to why Jesus did this. Some say, for example, that saliva in Jesus' day was thought to have healing properties. You know, kind of like when you burn your finger, you put it in your mouth. Others would say, well, no, Jesus was using clay like in Genesis 1. He was making clay and remaking, recreating the man's eyes. Calvin says that Jesus did this to intensify his blindness so as to magnify the cure. Now, there's something to that. 
and I'm very reluctant to disagree with Calvin. But I think the actual best explanation is the simplest one. Pastor Rick Phillips puts it this way. He says, Jesus had to give him something to wash off so that he could go to the pool. Jesus tells him to go and wash. And that's reminiscent of another healing, isn't it? With Elisha and Naaman, the Syrian. He was told to go to the stream and wash and be healed. But Jesus instead tells this man to go to Siloam. Now, the pool of Siloam has a history that you may not be aware of. It was created by King Hezekiah right before the siege of the Assyrians of Jerusalem. Hezekiah cut a channel from a stream of water through the rock of the temple, the rock that the temple was on, into the city of Jerusalem to bring water into the city for the siege. Now stop and think about that for a moment. Jesus tells him to go to the pool where the water comes through the temple. The temple that is the place of sacrifice and atonement and healing. And what does Siloam mean? Well, you don't need to guess. John helps us. It means sent. Now, it could refer to the fact that Jesus sends that man to wash. But I think it's better to remember that Jesus is the sent one. Jesus tells us that. He says, we must work the works of him who sent me. It was Jesus who was sent by the Father to bring healing and restoration. Jesus was sent to bring saving life to a world lost in darkness. Jesus is telling you today that your suffering is not random. It's not meaningless. It is seen by God and God has a purpose in it. But even more than that, Jesus is showing you that he has come to provide a way of life and light for those who are in darkness. You remember John chapter 1? In him was life. And the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. I'm not here this morning to tell you that your problems are small. Or to tell you to get over your problems. I am here this morning to tell you that Jesus is greater than your darkness. He is the light of the world. He is your light. Go to him now and find hope and grace. Let's pray.